to many. That's in Genesis chapter 22. And I want to talk to you this morning about sacrifice and literally the call to sacrifice. And we're going to look at Abraham's experience in this chapter. And it's a a tremendous passage and it does speak powerfully to our lives in a number of ways. As believers, we, uh, we have a great, a great goal in life. Can you think of what that goal is? Helping others to Christ. Anybody else? What was it? To become more like Christ. Isn't that our goal? I mean, amongst all the, the purposes and goals and things that, I mean, ultimately bring glory to God, but, but we have this great aim of our life, and that aim is to become like Him. The Scriptures even tell us that this is God's purpose for us. If you look at Romans chapter 8, verse 29, uh, the Apostle Paul writes in that passage uh, that we are, have been predestined to be conformed to the likeness of God's Son. So God's purpose is to make us like Jesus. Paul says the same thing over in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, uh, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory. He says, and this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit's job in us to work and to transform us so that we look more and more and more like Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean physically. That means that our very character, our very person, exhibits the qualities that Jesus did. Now, this is something that harkens way back to the beginning. If you read the the early chapters of Genesis, chapter 1 and 2, the creation chapters, uh, you see in, in chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, that God says, let us create man in our image, in our likeness. We are the only aspect of all of God's creation that is like God. Now, don't misunderstand. We're not gods, nor are we going to be gods, as uh, some other religious persuasions uh, believe erroneously. But God has, has made us, initially, made us like Him. We, we possess certain qualities that He is... Uh, Possessed of, and these—the reason he makes us like him—is so that we can have relationship with him. That's the whole point. This book is a book about relationships, isn't it? And in our stage, in our life, in our experience, uh, it's a book about the healing of relationships because all the relationships and between man and, and and God and such are they're all fractured because of sin. So God is in the repair business. In fact, he's more more than repair; he's in the total renewal business. And we know at the end of the book, he tells us he's going to renew the whole heavens and the earth. New heavens and a new earth. So he's restoring now the image that we initially had that was fractured because of sin. And you read about that in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, remember? So our great aim now is to be like him, to be like Jesus. So when people ask you, what's my goal in life? What's your goal in life? To be like Jesus. I want to look more and more like Jesus every day. Can you imagine what this world would be like if the church 
truly more and more look like Jesus? Would we have a powerful impact in our neighborhoods and our families and such? Absolutely. So if that is our goal, if that's the aim of our life, then if we are to be like God, if we are to be like him, uh, if we are to be like the one who gave his one and only son, if we're to be like the one who, who gave us the gift of eternal life, if we are to be like him who gives us all things for our enjoyment, then, beloved, we must learn one thing. We must learn to give. We must learn to give. If we're to become like him, we must not only learn to give, but we must learn to give sacrificially. That's so important. You say, well, I, I give, I give, I'm a giver. Okay. But you see, there's a tremendous difference between just giving and giving sacrificially. There's a tremendous difference. The God we worship is the God who gave sacrificially. John 3.16, familiar verse to almost every single one of us. God so loved the world, he so loved us, that he gave his one and only son. He gave his most precious possession. He gave sacrificially. So that whoever would believe in Jesus, whoever would believe, would, would not perish, would have everlasting life. We all know the, the, uh, the saying, when you, when you care enough, you send the very best, right? And so God cared enough, he sent the very best. He didn't scrimp, he, didn't, he wasn't cheap, he didn't look around heaven and say, what, can I, what, do, what don't I need? What's easy to give away? Well, I got this at a garage sale, I can give that away, it's not important to me. I've got this angel over here who's not doing much uh, this week. No, he, he, he had in mind to give his most precious possession. He gave sacrificially. He set the standard, did he not? For all the rest of us. This is, a, this is indeed a great challenge to us in our humanity. I would submit to you. This is God's sacrifice is the greatest sacrifice giving sacrifice the world has ever seen. There is no greater sacrifice than God giving his own son. And I want us to talk this morning, I want us to think together this morning as we look at this passage in Genesis chapter 22, what it means to try to touch that point of sacrifice in our lives. Now typically we will make a sacrifice here and there and we will, we will go, oh wow, I really sacrificed. But our, our lives, and this is, this is something that really I believe we have to engage. This is, God wants our lives to be expressions of sacrifice. Not just momentary sacrifices uh, now and again. But that our lives be lived as expressions of sacrifice. Is that not a challenge for us? Sure. It runs contrary to our fleshly nature, doesn't it? It runs contrary to our flesh that wants to be comfortable. The minute we hear the word sacrifice, we think, oh, no. Isn't that true? I mean, you look at the title of the sermon this morning. If you pull out your sermon notes, you go, oh, no, I called a sacrifice. (laughs) 
So I want us to, I want us to look at this. I want us to, to, to try to touch this, this point of sacrifice in our lives through Abraham's example and through what he does. And learn some things, hopefully, uh, from Abraham, who I think, my own opinion, made the second greatest sacrifice the world has ever seen in sacrificing Isaac, offering Isaac up. Look at this chapter with me. Look at verses 1 and 2 first. Chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And in the older translations, the word tempted is there. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the better translations have the word tested or tried Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And incidentally, that is the very first time in the Bible where the word love is used. Isn't it a unique place, huh? Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. What a horrible thought. Now Abraham was not unaware that child sacrifice was a practice of ancient pagan religions. I mean, it's a practice of our religion, our national religion in our country, isn't it? Isn't it? Don't we have a national religion? It's called humanism. It's taught in all of our schools. And, the, the, and, and humanism, one of the tenets of humanism is child sacrifice, isn't it? Abortion. You already heard about it this morning. So it's not an uncommon thing. Abraham knew about it in his day and age. And so for his God to call upon him to offer his only son as a sacrifice, maybe is not such a peculiar thing to Abraham. Because it's a cultural thing. In the story that follows, and we'll read it in just a moment, we're struck by, I think, a significant thing. And this is characteristic of all Hebrew stories, if you will, Hebrew accounts, is the simplicity of the writing. The one thing that we notice that kind of stands out in relief is this, is that there's no details to the story. There's no details about the landscape, no details about the clothes they wore, no details about the names of the servants that go with Abraham. There's no details. There's no details about anything, not even the emotions that they feel. We're not told anything except what? The bare statement of facts. Now, there's a point I want to get to, uh, but bear with me here. We can read between the lines and we can impute motives. We can impute feelings. We can impute to them, to Abraham. How did Abraham feel about giving up his son? We're not told. But you or I as parents would sit there and think, well, I have one son, only one son, whom I love greatly. But we're not told at all what Abraham felt about it. I can try to relate just my own feelings. But that's not the point of the passage. How did Isaac feel when he discovered that he was going to be the sacrifice? We're not told. We're not given any detail about his feelings. What did Sarah think about losing her one and only son? How did Abraham feel about the prospect of informing his wife that he had just killed their one and only son? 
if in fact he didn't tell her prior to the event. See, we're not told. And there are lots of these questions that concern the details that could be in the passage. Lots of these questions come to mind. But they are left unanswered. They're not even addressed. And I think there is a very, very good reason for that. This account, this story, is not meant to entertain us. We are given the bare facts because the account is meant to challenge us. Mark that. This account is meant to challenge us. And at the end of our time this morning, I want you to walk away. I want you to think, has God challenged me? Has this passage challenged me? It's not meant to make us feel good. It's not meant to entertain us. It's meant to challenge us. And there are some here this morning, in a group this large, there are some here this morning who are, who are lethargic about their faith. That's a kind way to say lazy. I don't mean to be pejorative. I don't mean to be mean-spirited. I, I'm telling you the truth. My job here is not to make you feel comfortable. My job is to make you feel uncomfortable. You go to the counselors to help you feel comfortable. My job is to stir you up and make you mad at me. Which I do very regularly, don't I? Let's read the account. Let's pick it up again at verse 3. God has commanded him now to go to Mount Moriah to take Isaac and to sacrifice him on that place. And early the next morning, uh, Abraham, without hesitation, gets up, saddles his donkey... And he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, you ever heard that before? On the third day. Hmm. Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Oh, wait a minute, I thought he was going to sacrifice Isaac. We're going to worship, we're going to come back to you. There's an interesting commentary on this passage. If you go way back over in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19. The writer of the Hebrews says to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac back from the dead. Isaac is absolutely full of faith. They're going to go worship. They're going to go, he's going to do what God called him to do. And God's going to have to raise him from the dead. We'll talk about that later. So we're going to come back. Verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. Is there not a picture there? Who else had the wood placed on them to carry it to the place of sacrifice? That's right. Isaac is a, is a picture of Jesus, isn't he? And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here. Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Now notice Abraham's response. It's a response of faith. He didn't say, you're the offering. He didn't say, I don't know. Look what he says. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God himself will provide the lamb for the offering, my son. 
He set his face like a flint. Remember, Jesus set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. You might want to underline that verse, verse 12. Now I know you fear God. Now I know that truly I have place number one in your life. Because you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the place Abraham sacrificed here. Is that what he called it? No, what did he call it? The Lord provided. The Hebrew expression to translate that is Jehovah Jireh. We all know that. The Lord provides. In verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and because you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Because you have obeyed me. What a powerful, powerful account. I want us to look at a couple of things. In... Verse 1, we're told that God tested Abraham. This is important. In the King James Version, and some of you may be reading from the King James Version, the word tempt is there, and it's important for us to differentiate because some people are concerned because James says over in his epistle, God does not tempt, nor is he tempted. Those of you familiar with the Bible know that the words tempt and test are used interchangeably in the New Testament. But they both come from the same Greek word, parazo, and and the only way you know which interpretation, whether it's tempt or test, is by who's doing it and what's the reason. So if God is involved and he is acting upon somebody, it's not a temptation, it's a test. If it's Satan, then you translate the word tempt. So it depends upon the context. Who's doing the action, whether it's tempting or testing, and what's the reason for it? So when you have the different words with different connotations, different meanings being used, and they're translations of the same original Greek word, you have to determine how to interpret it by the context. And that's exactly what we have here. We have some measure of confusion for some people. But most of the newer translations, as I said earlier, will translate it uh, as test. The Hebrew word, naka, which is used here in this particular passage, same way. 
you can translate that word tempt or test or try or prove. But again, it depends upon who's doing it and what the purpose is for. So here, obviously, uh, we would interpret it as test. Now, the difference between a temptation and a trial is significant. Let me give you these differences. And uh, temptation says this. This is what temptation says to us. Do this pleasant thing, because the Bible says there is pleasure in sin for a season, isn't there? Do this pleasant thing, and don't let yourself be hindered by the fact that it's wrong. That's temptation. Do this pleasant thing, and don't let yourself be hindered by the fact that it's wrong. You know, we have people today in our society saying, well, it's legal, it's legal. No, but it's wrong. I don't care if it's legal, it's wrong. Trial says this. Here's the difference between temptation and trial. Trial says this. Do this good and noble thing and don't let yourself be hindered by the fact that it's painful. Do this good and noble thing and don't let yourself be hindered by the fact that it's painful. Trials are painful, aren't they? Temptations are pleasurable. Big difference, would you agree? Is there a difference between trial and temptation? Substantial difference. Now there's three things that Abraham teaches us. And these are very, very important for you and I as we, as we integrate what's going on in this passage into our own lives. Here's the first thing that we can learn uh, from God's testing of Abraham. First one, our faith needs to be tested. Our faith needs to be tested. Our faith needs to be exercised. Aren't you excited about that? Most people say no, because you know what it means. It means what? It means trial. It means difficulty. It means challenge. But our faith needs to be tested. So what? So that it's be, it'll be strengthened. So that we can persevere in the faith. If your faith is not being tested, and if you're not responding to the test, if you're not growing and maturing and persevering in the faith, guess what? Jesus says it's he who perseveres in the faith that's saved. He who perseveres to the end is saved. So this is very, very crucial for us. If, if, if any, of, any of you have ever, ever, ever exercised, you know how important it is that, that exercise start and it continue and it continue. And that your muscles grow stronger, your body remains relatively healthy. Your muscles need to be exercised. Your body needs exercise for, for, your, for your, 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 you to function in, in relatively good health. And so if we succeed in the trial, if we succeed in the test, our faith then is strengthened and we are blessed as a result. So you need to ask yourself, what, where am I being tested right now? Where is God challenging my life? What, what obstacle, what, what difficulty is there? And it's there by the hand of God, but it's meant for my good or bad. It's meant for my good. And it's meant to strengthen me in my faith. We don't pray, oh God, be with me, be with me. No, we pray, God, thank you that you're with me. Thank you that you said you'd never leave me, never forsake me. Isn't that true? See, that's a prayer of faith. Lord, I know you're with me. 
You promised never to leave me. You're taking me into deep water and I know your hands are right under me. Isn't that exciting? So we don't pray some anemic prayer, some unbelieving prayer that says, Oh God, please be with me. Oh God, where are you? I can't feel you. And that's the way typically most of us will pray. Listen to your prayers. Rather than saying, I know, God, that you're here. I know you're with me. I know you're in me. And I know that you have a good purpose for my life. I know that this test, this trial, this difficulty I'm facing is for my good. Your will be done. See, that's heroic praying, isn't it? Do we generally pray that way? No. Should we? Yes. Now, what if you fail the trial? What if you fail the test? Now, if we pass it, if we do well, then our faith is strengthened, right? We're blessed. What if you fail the test? What happens then? Well, hopefully, at the very least, we'd have learned not to rely on our own strength, right? Many of us have been there. Oh, man, I'm not trusting myself anymore. And certainly, we ought to be learning what? To cling to God to hold on to him, to draw more closely to him. Because when you fail the test, there's a great price, isn't there? Typically. So we can learn from Abraham, first of all, that our faith needs to be tested. It is inevitable. It's going to happen. And here's the second thing we learn. Trials go on throughout life. Oh, joy. (laughs) Has anybody not discovered that yet? (laughs) Trials go on throughout life. They're inevitable. They're going to happen. Now, certainly there are periods of respite where we kind of solidify the gains and get ready for the next one, next challenge. You say, boy, if that means being, if this is what being a Christian is all about, I'm not sure I want to be a Christian. I'd rather pay the price now in terms of short-term pain for long-term gain. I'd rather go through the training and the challenging and the strengthening now in anticipation of what God has for me later rather than avoid the pain now. Abraham, Abraham knew this principle. You look at his life, and he was challenged throughout his life. In this particular passage, he's a very old man. He's about 140 years old, roughly. When he was a younger man, 75, remember, that's when God called him. That's when God spoke to him and challenged him. He said he was to leave everything he knew and to go to a place he didn't know. A challenge to his faith. Leave his security, leave his family, leave his country, leave everything he knew and go to a place he didn't know. Challenge to his faith. At 99, remember, God came and spoke to him again. And God challenged him at age 99 that that the same time next year, Sarah would give birth to a child. Here, Abraham and Paul, the Apostle Paul remarks on this in Romans chapter 4. He says, Abraham considered the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and Sarah's womb was dead also. So here's a couple. Humanly speaking, it's impossible for them to have kids. His body is as good as dead. That means he's impotent. There's just no way it's going to happen. He looks over at lovely Sarah. She's 90. There's no way. I don't know about you. In our modern technological advanced age, if you have visibility of any 100-year-old men and 90-year-old women having kids. Well, think about it 4,000 years ago. No way. 
So at 99, God challenges him to believe that he's going to have a son. Whoa, man. And now, at this great age, Abraham is asked to pass the most difficult test. What I'm suggesting, beloved, is that trials go on throughout life. You say, when will they end? When you're in heaven. (laughs) Does it get any easier? No. It gets harder. The trials are deeper. The tests are more difficult. The challenges are greater. Beloved, I, I can tell you by experience. And if Abraham were to pass this test, he would gain a great blessing, not only for himself, but for all the world. Tremendous consequences are wrapped up in this act of faith. God had promised him earlier in chapter 12 about the great promises he had for him. So his faith throughout his life has been tried over and over and over. So we can see that trials are not something that happened early in our life, early in our Christian experience. They're going to happen. They're going to be in our life throughout our life. And the issue is, am I going to embrace them? Am I going to believe that God is with me? I'm going to believe that they're for my good. Am I going to be obedient? Am I going to be a person who's willing to sacrifice? Really? Now, how would God have us respond to trials? How would God have us respond to testings? How would God have us respond to this call to sacrifice in our life? Huh? How do we typically respond? Grumble. Bummer. Oh, man. How how things going? Oh, you wouldn't believe how bad things are. How would God have us respond? Look at James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it pure sadness, my brothers. No, consider it pure what? Joy. When you, when you, when you encounter, uh, face trials of many kinds. Can you consider it joy? How in the world can I consider it joy? That doesn't make sense. That runs contrary to what, everything I know. Isn't that right, J.D.? What does God say? He says, because you know that the testing of your faith develops what? Perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God wants to grow us up. Again, all this says is that he's growing us up and he's making us like Jesus. And how does he do it? He uses his hammer and chisel on us. He puts us in the crucible and turns up the heat and burns off the dross. Trials. But they're for our good. Just so we be mature and complete. And, and that, that we persevere in the faith. When there's no trials, when there's no opposition, when there's no resistance to our faith, we just sit down. It's easy to sit down, become a couch potato. <laughs> trials are essential. Absolutely essential. Look what Peter says, the same thing that James says. First Peter chapter 1. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. Not just rejoice, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. There's a challenge to us just to rejoice in the midst of the trial, huh? But if I keep my perspective and I realize that this trial is meant for good, this trial is designed by God and brought into my life, to strengthen me, to strengthen my faith. 
He says, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though it's refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. In other words, we'll be like him. God be glorified. God, thank you for this trial. That, again, is not our typical response. So we need, again, to be told. We need, again, for God to remind us, this is how you respond to trials. Joyfully. Because God's at work in you. He's working you to make you like Jesus and to strengthen you so that you may persevere to the end. Here's the third thing that we learn from Abraham. What's the first one? Our faith needs to be tested. What's the second thing we learn from him? They go on throughout all of life. And here's the third thing, beloved. God prepares us for all these various trials. God prepares us for all these various trials. And this most difficult trial that Abraham was to face came last in his life. And it came after he had been schooled in other things. Beloved, God teaches us to climb the lower peaks before he calls us to scale the higher summit. He's not going to ask you to do which, that which you're not prepared for. How many times when God, God has, has brought us into a place of testing and trial, and how many of us have said, I can't stand it. I can't go another day. I can't handle one more minute of this. But there's, there's no relief. Nothing changes. You have to go on. See, God knows how much we can handle, whether it be testing or temptation. He always provides grace either to escape the temptation or to, what, embrace the test. My confidence is in Him, not in my flesh. My competency is from Him, not from myself. He prepares me for all of the tests. See, if I know that ahead of time, so when the test comes, I'm not going to be overwhelmed, I'm not going to be blown away. I'm going to say, well, I can't handle this. So, Lord, you and I can take care of this. It's you and I, Lord. It's you and I. Amen? Very, very important lessons for us, beloved. And there are lessons that are tied to each level of our faith. How many of us have been tested, and then we grow through that test, and we look back with 20-20 hindsight, and we say, you know, I learned something through that. How many times after the fact we say, God, thank you? Sometimes grudgingly, huh? Lord, I needed that. The psalmist in the 119th Psalm said, it was good that I was afflicted. But he says that in retrospect, doesn't he? There's great lessons, and God enables us to endure through every one of our trials. But Abraham's test of faith was unique because it was indeed a matter of great sacrifice. Great sacrifice. Let me give you a real simple definition of sacrifice. Sacrifice is giving up, giving up that which we love and cherish for something we love and cherish even more. Sacrifice is giving up that which we love and cherish for something we love and cherish even more. That's the essence of sacrifice. Did Abraham love and cherish Isaac? But did he love and cherish God more? I'll often talk to, periodically people will come and there'll be invariably a, a young woman who's 
enamored with a young man. The young man's probably not a Christian, and the young woman is, and she's gotten herself kind of caught in a situation that's really a, a conflict for her. And my counsel always is, he needs to know that you love Jesus more than you love him. You live your life to honor God. You tell him, I love Jesus more than I love you. Because if you compromise, he'll never... What am I learning from this? What am I learning from Abraham? The sacrifice of one who had already sacrificed his homeland, his future, his security. And now he's called to sacrifice the most precious thing on earth, his only son. When does it end? Heaven. When we finally get there and we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It's not a matter of just enduring. It's a matter of being more than a conqueror through all these things. Romans chapter 8. It's not that I'm I'm just kind of limping through life. It's God, through faith, sustains me and strengthens me. There's a supernatural power that moves me through these trials. I'm more than a conqueror. I am a Hooper Nico man. Super Nike missile. I love that. If you've been with me very long, you know that I love that, right? <laughs> now look, in doing what God says, Abraham has to face two, two conflicts, two major conflicts. And these are important because, again, we, we address the same kinds of things in our own life when we're called upon to sacrifice. Here's the first conflict that he has to address, and that's the conflict between a father's love for his child and a believer's obedience to his heavenly father. We face the same conflicts. There's things that we love in the world. There's situations we love, we're enamored with, we're bonded to, we're habituated to. I don't care the word you want to use, whatever the situation is. We love this. This is my thing. But God comes for some reason and says, give it up. Surrender it. Sacrifice it. Now, am I going to give that up because I want to obey Him, my Heavenly Father? Or am I going to cling to this thing because I'm so enamored with it? Am I making sense? doesn't matter if it's an illicit relationship. doesn't matter if it's something that's, that's legal. It's good. It's, it's not a bad thing. You've got to believe that God's going to come along and God's going to test your faith. And it may be over something substantial in your life that you hold near and dear. Maybe it's your money. Remember the rich young ruler? God said what? Give it all up. Could he sacrifice all of his possessions for... This relationship with with Jesus? No, he couldn't. What a tragedy. You and I look at that from from a vantage point of 2,000 years later and with great 2020 vision, we say, you fool. But how many of us get caught in the same kind of a situation where there's something we're holding on to, our anger, our resentment, our willfulness? We can go on and on and on, can't we? But I have a right to my feelings. I have a right to my anger. I have a right to my... Unforgiveness. God says what? Sacrifice it. Give it up. Obey me. Boy, there's a conflict big time there, is there not? Big time conflict. Abraham faced the same kind of conflict. Different issue, but the same kind of conflict. And... If you look back to verse 2, the first part of verse 2 of this passage, when God called Abraham to sacrifice, 
God knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly, he knew exactly what it was going to cost Abraham because in the language of the verse, he stresses the difficulty of this obedience. Your son, your only son, whom you love. God knows exactly where Abraham lives. He knows exactly where you and I live. You know what idolatry is? Idolatry is putting something between you and God. Doesn't matter what it is. Doesn't have to be an idol. Could be anything. Could be another person. Oh, oh. And I've seen people shipwreck their faith because they wouldn't give up that which God clearly tells them to give up in order to walk with Him. It's a sacrifice. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 that our lives should be what? Living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. I had a conversation, a real brief conversation with a young lady in our church. And uh, I said to her, I grabbed her the other night and I said to her, I said, you know what? We're called to live holy lives. She knew that. But I wanted to underscore it. I believe God called me to say that to her. People come to me and they say, well, well, can't we have fun as Christians? No! <laughs> Let me just settle it right now. God gives us everything richly for our enjoyment. He means for us to enjoy life. He means for us to enjoy His gifts. Fun is trivializing His gifts. On my march towards holiness, towards becoming like Christ, in dealing with trials, certainly my human part wants to have some relief. I want to blank out. I want to pig out. (laughs) But I think for most of us, typically, we confuse fun with enjoyment. How can you enjoy something unless you embrace it fully? How can you enjoy your marriage, your relationship with some significant person, your child, unless you embrace that person, embrace that relationship? You can't enjoy it. We trivialize these things. The difficulty of obedience is what we must embrace. Here's the second conflict, and this is even more difficult... And this is the conflict between the promise of God and obeying God. Between the promise of God and the command of God. It's as though God were set against himself because he had already previously promised Abraham that through Isaac, this miraculously born son, and he was, wasn't he? That all the earth would be blessed, that all the peoples would be blessed through Isaac. So it's as if God is set against himself. Wait a minute, you promised God. And now comes this command to kill Isaac. It's as if God were telling Abraham to take a sledgehammer to this promise and smash it to smithereens. Are you with me? Sometimes it seems as though, and I've heard this, the Bible is contradictory, huh? Sometimes, and I've heard this, it seems that God says one thing and then says another thing. They seem contradictory. They're not contradictory at all. (laughs) 
How would our, what would our response be? If we had to deal with this conflict of, of, of a clear promise from God, and yet the command of God would seem to be contrary to the promise. How would we do? What would we do? What would you do if you're Abraham? Well, most of us would say, well, now, wait a minute. Let's not be too rash here. Let's not kill Isaac. Let's use common sense. What makes the most sense? Now, what would make the most sense to us? To embrace the promise. Hold on to this good thing. And have we not rationalized sin in our life? Oh, well, God must have brought this person to my life. So therefore, I must, I must hold on to them. When clearly, it's an inappropriate relationship. When clearly, yes, maybe God has brought that person in your life, but maybe it's a test to your faith. What are you going to do? Are you going to hold on to this illicit thing? Or are you going to submit to the command of God to honor Him and obey Him and walk in faith? And again, typically most people say, and many Christians sadly, will, will, will opt for the former and not the latter. You say, well, how do I resolve the conflict? Abraham teaches us how to resolve that conflict. This is great. You see, because Abraham looks with a keener eye, with a clearer perception, a clearer understanding of the issues at hand. I want to suggest to you that Abraham saw that it was his responsibility as a human being to obey. And it was God's responsibility to fulfill the promise. My responsibility to do what I'm supposed to do, the results are in his hands. Well, if I do this, you don't know. It's just all going to come unraveling. It's all going to come apart. You just don't know. If I go talk to them, they're just going to hate me. Don't leave God out of the equation. So many times we do, don't we? We leave God out of the equation. When he clearly says, look, I'm going to do something here. You go. Oh, man. Our responsibility is to obey. His responsibility is to bring about the results. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Husbands, love your wives. Sacrifice. Lay your life down for your wife. Oh, man, if I do that, you just don't know. She's going to take advantage of me. And if there's anything worse a guy hates is being taken advantage of, right? No, you obey. Let God work in her heart. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. I love this passage in 1 Peter. Many of you know it. When Peter goes on, he describes this issue of submission, and he tells women to emulate Sarah, who called her husband Lord. Yes, Lord. My wife has a cute variation. She says, yes, O king. What is your wishes today? But she, of course, is serious about it. Call him Lord. He's a jerk. We're getting ready, by the way, for the next marriage seminar, aren't we? (laughs) 
Yeah. Submit to him, even if he doesn't deserve it. Peter says, even if he's disobedient to the word, he doesn't obey the word. You submit to him. Then he may be won over without a word on your part, but by, by the fact that he observes your life, your gentle and quiet spirit, your, your pure, chaste behavior. I want to wring his neck. I know you want to wring his neck. Do what God says. Obey God. And put your husband in his hands. You see, we all deal with these. I mean, that's just one example. We can go on and on and on. Obey. Our part is to obey and to leave the results in his hands. Leave for him to fulfill his word. He'll fulfill his word. He'll do what he says. His word is true. Kills me. I hear people say, well, I, I knew somebody that, you know, they gave and they never got it returned to them. <laughs> Tightens my jaw when I hear those things. <laughs> Abraham cast himself on the naked word of God. He trusted God's word. What God said would happen. It wasn't dependent on somebody else's experience or feelings or some foolish counsel, some psychologist. Oh, I did it again. <laughs> Sorry. Slipped. I guess it was time. You see, Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God. And we're told he became the father of all the faithful. He's our father in the sight of God in whom he trusted. Isn't this exciting, Ken? I love this. Look what he did. His obedience was complete. It was without flaw. He didn't hesitate one bit. He went. Look at verses 9 through 12. Just look with me real quickly. He built the altar, arranged the wood, bound his son, laid him on the altar, took the knife. Boom, 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 boom. Is that complete obedience? Without hesitation. Earlier on, verse 3, early the next morning, no quibbling. Yes, Lord. Now remember, God brought him to that place, didn't he? All these trials, all these tests in our life are to bring us to the place where the next trial, the next trial, we, we can more readily and quickly embrace. And then there was found that ram, the substitute. God had provided, and Isaac was spared. There on Mount Moriah, Isaac was spared. It was there the faith of Abraham was realized. This is important. It was there on Mount Moriah, in that moment of sacrifice, in that very instant of commitment, yes, Lord, I'm going to do what you say. That's when his faith was realized, and that's when he realized more than at any other point that he trusted God in that moment of willing sacrifice. So often our faith needs to be tested so that we see its reality. Yes, God, I believe. 
You know, it's so easy to say, I believe in Jesus, isn't it? I mean, if you believe all the national polls and and George Barna and all the pollsters who say 90% of America is Christian, get out of my face. A lot of people say, I believe, I believe, I believe. But when it comes down to the nitty-gritty, when the rubber meets the road, their faith is no more substantial than jello. It will not stand the test. But ours will, won't it? Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. When God saw Abraham's faith, when he saw the completeness of his willingness to sacrifice, then God revealed the blessings that follow sacrifice. What do blessings follow? What do blessings follow? What do blessings follow? Sacrifice! It's important. Many, many people never see the hand of God opened up in incredible blessing. I hear it over and over. Well, God never talks to me. I never get anything when I read the Bible. I pray. I never have miracles in my life. I hear these other people. I never get that. No wonder. What do blessings follow? Sacrifice. Blessings don't follow some anemic, part-time, wimpy contribution. God opens the windows of heaven in response to sacrifice, willing sacrifice. Well, my marriage isn't doing so good. Some people never, ever come to that place of sacrifice. They never come to that place of sacrifice. They come and they sit in services for year after year after year. They sit in a chair. They threw a few bucks in the bucket when it goes by. They do their perfunctory exercise as Christians. And they never, ever come to that place of sacrifice in their life. That causes me great fear. I don't want to go through all of my life living in a perfunctory manner and get to the end of my life and find out it was all in futile effort. When I wasn't really a believer in the first place. I wasn't really obedient to God in the first place. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I tell you to do? I'm getting some amens down here in the front corner, for instance. Far too many people today, beloved, are busy. They're so busy holding on to what they have because they cannot believe that if they let it go, God could bless it and multiply it. Sacrifice. You're here today, not by accident. How many know that? You're by grand divine design. You may have rolled over this morning, the alarm went off and said, oh, I don't feel like going to church today. But something compelled you to come. God wanted you here. Because he wanted you to hear this thing about sacrifice. And because you're here, now guess what? You heard it and you're accountable, aren't you? Ha! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're accountable. Today, you and I are called to sacrifice. 
We're called to sacrifice. The question is, will you pass the sacrifice? Many, I believe, will. Many in this room will step up. Many in this room have stepped up and will pass the test. And you will discover again and again the blessings of God in your life. Hallelujah. You'll discover Jehovah Jireh. The Lord provides. Oh, it's like, it's like Jimmy and Kathy. Right out of their clear blue sky, God provides. They've both undergone tremendous personal sacrifice in the restoration of their marriage. I know all about it. I got to play some little tiny part in it. But others of you, I'm afraid, will fail the test. You'll miss the joy of discovering Jehovah Jireh in your life. You're going to miss the test. You know, not me, not me, not me, not me. Maybe you. There are some people, again, in a, in a group this size, who you're going to hear these words, and they're going to go either right over your head or going to go in one ear and out the other. You may right now intellectually go, mm-hmm, yeah, I agree, mm, oh, yeah, mm, but you walk out that door and forget it. I know that to be true. That is a horrible tragedy. Finally, In Abraham's offering his son, we know that there's this great foreshadowing of the one great sacrifice God would offer with his son. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Now there's a difference here between Abraham's offering Isaac and and God offering Jesus. And the difference is right in the first line. He who did not spare his own son. He who did not spare his own son. Isaac was spared, wasn't he? Not Jesus. But gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God who spared not. Beloved, there was no voice that came from heaven and said when Jesus was about to be nailed to the cross, stop. Do not lay your hand on the boy. He did not spare his own son. Brings us full circle. Sacrifice. God. Sacrifice. He means to make us like him. And out of that great sacrifice, we have all received blessings of Jehovah Jireh. Beloved, we're called to sacrifice. We're called, there is no other life. There's no other way for the Christian. There is no other way. Again, I call your attention to Romans chapter 12. In view of God's mercy to you, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. He says, this is your spiritual service of worship. And do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world. Don't give in to the temptations of this life. But rather, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then... You will be able to test and approve what God's will is. God's will, good, pleasing, and perfect. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Abraham. Thank you for example. Lord, thank you that you love us. 
And thank you for your great purpose to change us and to transform us into the likeness of your Son, that we bear his character. Lord, you have planted in us the seed of divine life. You've caused us to be reborn. Help us, Lord, to be people who, who can, whenever you call, be willing to indeed embrace sacrifice. Thank you, Father. We love you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we stand together and let's sing to Jehovah Jireh. Let's praise his name. Jehovah Jireh. I